So make sure you get your tickets. We're going to have an incredible celebration next weekend. By the way, just so you know, on Easter, I choose to do everything I can to keep the cookies on the bottom shelf. Okay, it's because I know we're going to have a lot of guests that show up for the very first time. They're, they're not even sure if they believe in God. They don't know about the Bible. And I basically have one goal, maybe two goals on Easter. One, I want to make sure everybody gets to hear a clear presentation of what the gospel is. That Jesus Christ came to this earth, died on the cross, rose from the dead, so that we would have a way to be reconciled back to the Father. And then I want to make sure that maybe they come back. In other words, maybe they move into that category we talked about in our Finding God series of exploring God, and they began to kick the tires of Christianity. So make sure you get your tickets. Make sure you invite, because you don't know how God is going to use that invitation in someone's spiritual and eternal destiny. Now, last weekend, as a part of our celebration, I challenged our congregation, and if you're visiting this weekend, this may freak you out a little bit, but I challenged our congregation in the month of April to give $400,000 above our regular giving. And it's a thanksgiving offering to God for his faithfulness over the past 25 years to us. We want to be faithful to him. And we're going to use that money to help launch our new Garner campus that's going to be launched this fall. Now, I just want to let you know, so far uh, in just one week, we are at $191,000 above our regular giving that has been earmarked just for Garner. That's pretty good. So we're halfway there, guys. And we still have this week and the next week and left. Listen, I don't care what you give. I want everybody to be involved above your regular giving at some level because when, I'll tell you what, when we go to Garner with the Word of God, it's not going to return void. It's going to put marriages back together. It's going to solve family problems. It's going to impact lives. And you want to be able to say, I played a role. God wrote me into his story by allowing me to partner with him in what is happening in Garner. So make sure you get involved. All kinds of ways you can give. You can write a check and drop it in the offering boxes in the atrium. You can go to the website, gethope.net. You can use the app. Uh, sometimes when people give, if they want to give a sizable gift, I guess there's some ta tax advantages. Some people like to give stock. And if that's something that's of interest to you, you can contact our office. They will ha tell you how to do that. I've no never owned a piece of stock in my life. So somebody else will have to talk to you about that one, okay? But let's get involved and let's celebrate that. Now, as I said, Easter, I like to keep the cookies on the bottom shelf. So I want to do something different this weekend. It's Palm Sunday as we get ready for next Easter. I want to talk about something that I could never talk about on Easter weekend, okay? I want to talk to you about, this is going to excite you, the theology of Easter. I mean, really, what's the big deal about Easter? And I'm just going to warn you ahead of time. I hope you're okay with this. I'm going to use a lot of the Bible this weekend. I know that's kind of weird, but we're really going to look at the Bible because here's the idea. My opinion I tell you, it's worth about two cents. My opinion and a dollar will get you a cup of coffee at McDonald's. See, that's why, not Starbucks, but McDonald's, you could get a cup of coffee with my opinion and another dollar, right? And you know, there's this old saying that you can't fix stupid, but you can fix stupid Christians with good theology. So that's what we're going to do, good sound theology. So that's what we're going to do this weekend. And I want to just begin, uh, being that it's Palm Sunday, by giving you a quick timeline of the day that Jesus died, okay? If you've ever read the Gospel of John, by the time you get to John chapter 13, about three years has been covered in the, in the ministry of Jesus. But when you get to John 13, to the end of the book, you're, you're really looking at just a few weeks, and most of it just a few hours. For example, John 13 is the upper room where Jesus had that last Passover meal with the disciples. It's where he washed their feet. It's where he told Judas, whatever you're going to do, go and do quickly. And Judas left that meeting, that dinner, and he put into motion the crucifixion. But think about it this way. 
John 13, John 14, John 15, John chapter 16. It's Jesus getting some last minute teaching time, some very intense truths he still wants his disciples to hear. John 17, Jesus prays. It really is the Lord's Prayer. John 18, it says Jesus crosses over the Kidron Valley. He makes his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's where Judas knew he would be. And that's why Judas showed up with the Roman soldiers. And it was there in the Garden of Gethsemane after Jesus had prayed and sweat great drops of blood. Hey, let this cup pass from me. If there's any other way to make this happen, that people can be restored back into a relationship with you, Father, other than me going to the cross, could we do it? However, not my will, but your will be done. And so he prayed that. And sometime, maybe right after that prayer, he heard a commotion. He looked up, and there he saw Judas, and there he saw the Roman soldiers. And remember, Judas betrayed him with a kiss, and Jesus was arrested. He would never be free again. Now, understand if we could say, that's about probably 12 o'clock to 1 a.m. when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Between 1 a.m. and about 7 a.m., Jesus went through not one trial, but Jesus actually went through six trials. Every one of them were illegal. Part of them were from the Jews, the Sanhedrin. There were a couple of times that he went before Pilate. He went before Herod. But he was going all over the place. A lot of us believe that, you know, there was one trial. Jesus went before Pilate. And Pilate says, I don't find anything that he's done wrong, but I wash my hands on it. You take him and crucify him. I just don't want the Jews to have a riot. That's what he was really trying to keep from happening. He, was, he wanted to make sure he didn't get in trouble as the Roman ruler at that time. But Jesus went through six trials that eventually did end up at the residence of Pilate where Pilate says, take him and crucify him. It's probably about seven o'clock in the morning. Jesus has been up all night. They now took Jesus to what is known as the scourging. It was literally called halfway death. The whole intent of beating the victim was to make sure that once he got to the cross, he really didn't live that much longer. So he was scourged. Jesus was beaten within an inch of his life. And then remember, they mocked him. They gave him a robe. They gave him a reed. They gave him a crown of thorns. And they, they held him as the king of the Jews. And then Jesus took his cross, not the whole cross, it would have been way too heavy, but he took the cross beam and he made his way to Golgotha, where it tells us in Mark chapter 15, verse 25, that Jesus was actually nailed to the cross at about nine o'clock that morning. Now, when you get to Matthew chapter 27, verse 45, Matthew adds, from noon, so Jesus had been on the cross for about three hours, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But understand, this was the part of the crucifixion that Jesus was dreading. This was the part where he was saying, hey, if there's any other way, because Jesus was dreading not the nails in his hands, not the spikes in his feet, not the crown of thorns, not the scourging. What Jesus was dreading was he knew that at some point, he who knew no sin was going to become sin for us. And Jesus knew that he was going to take on himself, the Father was going to put on him the sin of every, every person that had ever committed, every person ever would commit, all of the weight of that sin, all the guilt, all the shame of the pain of that sin would be placed at one point in time on the shoulders of Jesus. And Jesus knew that when he took our sins, that the Father being holy would have to look away. And understand up until this point, Jesus the Son and the Father had had this perfect harmonious relationship. And he was like, why have thou forsaken me? And then it says in Matthew chapter 27, verse 50, when Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. So we know that Jesus was nailed to the cross nine o'clock in the morning. He died sometime around three o'clock in the afternoon. By the way, by crucifixion standards, that was a pretty quick death. Uh, there are actually cases on record of victims that lived on the cross, sometimes for days, 
Sometimes they even made it for weeks. Jesus mercifully in six hours, he died. And then it says this, if we pick up Luke's account in Luke 23 verse 50, now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, that's the Sanhedrin, it's like the Supreme Court of the Jews, a good and upright man who had not consented. In other words, he was not on this drive by the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders to get Jesus to the cross, who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea. So now we have Joseph of Arimathea. And he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. In other words, he bought into the teaching of Jesus. He bought into the kingdom. He recognized Jesus Christ for who he was, the Son of God, the Messiah. And so it says, going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. Now notice this, it was preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now let me explain something. You know, for us, a day goes from like midnight until the next midnight, right? But that's not the way it is for the Jews. In fact, if you travel with me to Israel, you'll quickly pick up, for example, the Sabbath begins at sundown on Friday and goes to sundown on Saturday. And the first day of the week, Sunday begins at sundown on Saturday, and it goes to sundown on Sunday. And so about six o'clock on Friday would be the beginning of the Sabbath. They wanted to get Jesus in the tomb before the Sabbath began. So it's probably about five o'clock to six o'clock sometime in the evening. And then it says in verse 55, the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. By the way, if you ever go to Israel with me, you'll notice that even to this day, when you're in a hotel on the Sabbath, the Jews are not allowed to push a button for what floor? So on the Sabbath, the elevators automatically work. You get in, you stand in it, the door shuts, you go to the first floor, it opens, it shuts, goes to the second floor, and then it comes back down the same way. But they're not even allowed to push buttons. That would be considered work on the Sabbath. So they're, they're observing the Sabbath. And then if you have your Bible, you'll notice between Luke chapter 23, verse 56, and Luke chapter 24, verse 1, there's a space that represents a period of silence. It's the time that Jesus is in the tomb. And then you read in Luke 24, verse 1, on the first day of the week, so that's Sunday, very early in the morning, the women, John tells us that Mary Magdalene was one of those women, took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Why? Because he had tried to tell them over and over again, I am going to die. Three days later, I'm going to come back to life, right? And it happened just as he predicted. And so here's the question I want to talk about this weekend. What was Jesus doing? What was Jesus up to from the time that he rose from the dead until the time that he appeared to the disciples the evening of the first Easter? And we're going to address that by answering three questions. Here's the first question. What did Jesus tell his disciples about the first Easter? Now, you're going to have to set aside some uh, preconceived ideas for what I'm going to be sharing with you guys in the next few minutes. To answer that question, I want us to look at John chapter 14. And if you've been a Christian and you've been around church for a while, the common thinking of most Christians is that John chapter 14 is talking about the second coming of Jesus. And for there to be a second coming, there would have to be a first coming. So when was the first coming of Jesus? Good, Christmas, that's right. He came and God became flesh and dwelt among us. My mom's not here this weekend, so she couldn't answer that. But anyway, you guys know that. Now, so Jesus came the first time. The second coming will be when Jesus returns to this earth. 
He's going to come back as king and ruler and judge. He's going to judge this world. He's actually going to destroy this world, and then he's going to recreate it the way it was created originally. And actually, this new heaven, this new earth, is where those of us who are Christians are going to spend all eternity. That's another message for another time. In fact, I did a series a couple of years ago called What's Next, and I talked about heaven and where we would spend eternity. You may want to go listen to that. But that would be the second coming. I want to show you a different perspective this weekend. And don't get me wrong, I believe in the second coming. I just don't think that John chapter 14 is talking about the second coming. I think you'll see it's talking about the first Easter. So John chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Remember, this is teaching that is now continuing from the upper room. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father, Father's house has many rooms. Now, if you grew up in church, you're like, whoa, 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 Mike, it's supposed to be a mansion. I was supposed to get a mansion, right? And that would be kind of shallow to think that's the only reason, you know, we, you know, we were going to go to heaven. Just go live in Preston if you want a mansion. You know what I'm saying, right? right. But we think it's, it's not a mansion. In fact, did you know the King James translation is the only translation that calls it mansions? The word is actually rooms, or even better, dwelling places. So really what he's saying is, my father's house has many dwelling places. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Now, that's why people think it's talking about the second coming. One day Jesus is going to come and get us, and he's going to take us to heaven, and we're going to live in our mansion. But I think that this is what Jesus is saying in John chapter 14. He's saying this, listen, you can't dwell with the Father right now because you don't have a relationship with the Father. And the reason you don't have a relationship with the Father is I haven't finished my job. I haven't finished my work. And as a result, you haven't been able to be restored and reconciled back into a relationship with the Father, but I'm going to take care of that. So don't be troubled. Don't get all bent out of shape. I'm going to go away. I'm going to be right back. I'm only going to be gone for a little while. In fact, let me show you that in John chapter 14. Drop down to verse 25. He says this. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Now notice this. Peace I live, leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Now notice this. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Remember what he said. You're going to get the Holy Spirit and you're going to get peace. You heard me say, I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you love me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I am. Verse 29. I have told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe. And so Jesus says, listen, I am going to go away, but I am coming back. And I'm telling you this before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. Now let me ask you a question. Is anybody going to have a problem believing in Jesus after the second coming? No. Paul talked about this in Philippians chapter 2. He said when Jesus returns, what? Every knee will bow. Every tongue on this earth will confess that, oh wow, Jesus Christ is actually who he said he is. I'm telling you, when Jesus Christ comes back to this earth the second time, it's going to be like shock and awe all over again. It will be automatic. People's knees will hit the ground. They won't even have to think about it. They will be so overwhelmed by his return. It's like, you know, nobody has to tell you when you touch the hot stove to pull your hands back, do they? It's automatic. 
When something's coming at your face, what do you do? You close your eyes, you flinch. It's automatic. I'm telling you, it's going to be the exact same way when Jesus returns. People are going to hit their knees and people are going to be like, wow, Mike was right. You know, or my mama was right, right? But see, the second coming is going to be overwhelming. Jesus said this in John 14. I'm telling you this so that when it happens, you'll believe, implying the resurrection. But remember, Jesus also talked about peace and the Holy Spirit. John 14, verse 26, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Let me ask you a question. Did the Holy Spirit come after the resurrection or did the Holy Spirit come after the second coming? It was after the resurrection. So again, Jesus isn't talking about the second coming. He's talking about the resurrection. And this is what Jesus is saying to his disciples. I'm telling you ahead of time, something is getting ready to happen that is going to devastate you. And he's referring to his crucifixion. And he says, I've got to go away for a while, but I'm going to be back. You're going to see me again. And I'm telling you this before it happens. So when it does happen, you'll get it. So that when it does happen, you will believe. So Jesus says, I am going to the Father. Let me show you something else. John chapter 16. Remember, this is continuous teaching all the way up through John 16, John 13 to John 16. He says this in verse uh, 16 of John 16. Jesus went on to say, in a little while you will see me no more. And then after a little while you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Verse 19, Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Verse 20, very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. In other words, when you see me on the cross, it's going to devastate you. Now, the people who got me there, they're going to think they got rid of me. They're going to be running around celebrating, high-fiving, right? But then he goes on to say, you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Verse 21, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child has been born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. So I'm telling you, Jesus is talking about the first Easter. That is very important. And remember this phrase, I'm telling you this ahead of time. I'm telling you this before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe. Question number two. What was Jesus doing the morning of the first Easter? Well, let's go to John's account. John chapter 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, so it's Sunday morning, while it was still dark, so the sun hasn't even come up yet, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. Now, this isn't Mary the mother. This is Mary Magdalene. Went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved. By the way, whenever John refers to himself in the Gospel of John, he always refers to himself as the one that Jesus loved. John was really sold on himself, right? So anyway, so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and John take off running to the tomb. And by the way, when John records this, he says, and the disciple that Jesus loved got there first. He wanted him to, uh, us to know that he outran Peter. You can read that on your own, right? 
So they run, they look in the tomb, and maybe this is what they saw. If you go to meet with me to Israel, this is the garden tomb that's just about 50 yards from a skull, a place of the skull, Golgotha. And if you read, it says that Jesus was buried in a tomb in a garden nearby where he was crucified. Literally, this is 50 yards. That's an empty tomb that was found in the garden there. The dollar bill was not there. That's some dumb American threw a dollar bill in there. I'm not sure why. But if you walk into the tomb and look to the right, maybe that's what they saw. And they don't get it. Because they know that Jesus was there, right? So they're like, I'm going to go back home and go to bed. Right. So these guys aren't very spiritual. Mary is left at the tomb all by herself. Now this is where it gets interesting. Because you know what? We all have a bunch of questions that we would never admit that we don't understand. And there's some stuff I've actually avoided teaching because I wasn't sure I could explain it. Okay? I'm going to try it this weekend. John 20 verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. She wanted to see again. Like, what, am I missing something? She saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken away my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. Now, Jesus several times told them this was going to happen. I'm going to die. Three days later, I'm going to come back. None of them ever believed it. See, that's why they weren't waiting outside the tomb holding hands going, five, four, three. See, they weren't doing that. No welcome back Jesus, no fresh change of clothes so they could go clubbing. None of that's going on. See, they don't think he's coming back, right? Look at this. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. Look at this. But she did not realize that it was Jesus. Did that ever bother you? I mean, that's weird. Do you know why it's weird? She's hung out with him for years. And you know how I used to explain it? Well, you know, he was beaten so badly, scourged. He's had that crown of thorns. You know, he, he probably was just unrecognizable from the beating he got. But then you got to remember... She saw him on the cross after the beating. She actually helped prepare his body for burial. She already knew what his body looks like. So there's something, we don't know what it is, but there's something different about Jesus' appearance. But it gets weirder. John 20, verse 15. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener. Well, that's weird too. You know? I don't know if Mary Magdalene slipped and was going... You know, going back to the crazy whack. I don't know what's going on here, but it's just weird. So she says, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary, and immediately she recognized his voice. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me. Look at that. And this is so key. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father. Now, where was Mary to tell the disciples that Jesus was going? Going to the Father. Verse 17, I am, present tense, I am ascending to my Father. But I also want you to notice that Jesus said in verse 17, don't hold. The Greek word is literally touch. It's the same Greek word that's translated touch when the woman had the issue of blood. And remember, she reached out and touched Jesus' garments and she was healed. Jesus said, I felt the power go out of me. It's the exact same Greek word. So think of it that way. Don't touch me, for I have not yet ascended to the fathers. But this is what I want you to do, Mary. Go tell the disciples that I am right now, present tense, ascending to my father. So understand, this isn't the ascension that took place over 
in Acts chapter 1. This ascension happened the morning of the resurrection. Then notice it says in John 20, verse 19, on the evening of that first day of the week. So that's Sunday night. Where's Jesus been all day? He's been with the Father. Remember what he said, I am ascending to the Father. And he told the disciples that when he came back, he was going to bring two things with him. Remember what they were? Peace and the Holy Spirit. Let me show you something maybe you've never seen before. Laura had never seen it before, and I showed it to her. John 20, verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, so this is the first Christmas Easter evening, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, remember they thought they were also going to get put on the cross, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands inside. What did he say to Thomas? Touch me. What did he say to Mary that morning? Don't touch me. I haven't yet ascended to the Father. Now he says, touch me. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Now notice this, with that he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Did you realize the disciples got the Holy Spirit? They got a preview of the Holy Spirit the night of the first Easter. Now, the Holy Spirit came to mankind, we know, in Acts chapter 2. But it says Jesus breathed on them and they said, and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So Jesus says to the disciples in John 14, don't let your hearts be troubled. I got to go to the Father because you can't be in a relationship with the Father right now. In other words, you can't be where I am right now. You can't dwell where I dwell right now. But I'm going to go and I'm going to go see my Father and I'm going to take care of it so that you can. So that the same way that I am in a relationship with the Father, you're going to be able to be in a relationship with the Father too. And when I come back, I'm going to give you two signs. I'm going to give you peace, and I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit so that you will believe. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Sometime between the resurrection of Jesus and his appearance to Mary, the Bible says that Jesus descended to a place called Sheol, S-H-E-O-L. It means, in Hebrew, the place of the departed. Sometimes it's referred to as paradise. Sometimes it's referred to as Abraham's bosom, but it was basically a holding cell for Old Testament saints. Well, wait a second. Why didn't Abraham and Isaac, why didn't they just go to heaven? Ah, because, see, the finished work of the cross hadn't been completed yet. Remember what Jesus said? I'm bringing a brand new covenant. But they were still under the old covenant. And the grave and death hadn't been conquered yet. And so an Old Testament saint, remember, they looked forward in faith to one day the Messiah was going to come. That's where they placed their faith. Remember Abraham, through you is going to come the Messiah who will save all the people of the world. Be, right, right. That's what, and Abraham believed it and it was credited to him, righteousness, right? He looked forward. See, we look back, they look forward. So they were in this whole, in fact, remember the thief on the cross? What did Jesus say? He said, today I'll see you where? Not in heaven, what did he say? Paradise. Hey, I'll catch up with you in just a few minutes. In paradise, right? So Jesus descends to this holding cell for the Old Testament saints. And Jesus walks in and says, hey, Satan, I have broken your power over death and the grave. Give me the keys. And Jesus took the keys and he led those Old Testament saints out. Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. 
But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, and he quotes Psalm 68, verse 18, when he ascended on high, look at this, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended. So let me try to give you a timeline. Sometime before appearing to Mary, and I think that Jesus probably rose from the dead probably not much after sundown on Saturday because that would have begun the first day of the week. He descends to Sheol to retrieve the Old Testament saints, okay? But before Jesus took those Old Testament saints to heaven, you know what he did? He stopped off in Jerusalem and said, Mary, I need you to go explain what's going on to those thick-headed disciples. They were never going to get it unless the woman explains it to them, right? And this is what I think happened. I'll show you why I say this. You guys are going to think I'm crazy, but I, I'm going to show you. I think the saints were like, wow. It's been a while since we've been in Jerusalem. Do you think maybe while you're catching up with Mary and telling her whatever you got to tell her, you think it'd be okay if we just walk around for a little while and check out the place? You say, Mike, are there any unicorns in this story too? Well, let me just show you. Let me show you. Matthew 27, verse 51. I want to show you something, and this could easily be confused with the crucifixion because it comes right on the tail of it, but look at this. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs broke open, the bodies of many holy people. I do not know why the new NIV insists on screwing things up, but the word is saints. So just think of it that way. The body of many saints who had died were raised to life. Look at this. They came out of the tomb when? After Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine Abraham walking around with Isaac, his son? Hey, Isaac, see that mall? That's where I played baseball. I used to be a baseball field when I was a kid. That's where I played baseball. See that Starbucks over there? That's where I met your mom, Sarah. It used to be a taco truck. I met her right over there one day. We were getting tacos one day. I mean, this is going on in Jerusalem. And then on Sunday morning, this first Easter, Jesus ascended into heaven with those saints because now the work of the cross and the resurrection was done. Now they could now have a relationship with the Father. And then that evening, Jesus went back to see the disciples. It looks something like this, okay? You got the cross, and you got the tomb. I would say sometime, like I said, after Saturday evening when the sun set, Jesus, Jesus comes out of the tomb. Goes to this place called Sheol. Rounds up all the Old Testament saints. Says, hey, I'm taking you to heaven, but I need to stop off, if you don't mind. And I need to see Mary. I'm better at just circles. <laughs> Mary, go tell the disciples. While she's talking, I mean, these Old Testament saints, they're just all over Jerusalem having a blast. Mary goes off to tell the disciples. Jesus rounds them back up, takes them to heaven, spends the afternoon in heaven, and then he comes back down that night, and he meets with the disciples. I'll show you. Let me show you a verse, though. There's an Old Testament passage that talks about what happened when the saints finally got to heaven. Let me show it to you. 
When they got to the gates of heaven, this is what they shouted. Psalm 24, verse 7. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And the angels respond, who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. And I'm telling you, those gates opened up, and Jesus walked into heaven, and he led those Old Testament saints with him. Now, wouldn't it be cool if there was a passage in the Bible that told us what happened when Jesus was in heaven that afternoon? Question number three. What was Jesus doing the afternoon of the first Easter? Let me show you a verse before I show you that one. John chapter 12. This is right before they move into the upper room. This is right after Jesus. You can read it on your own. He says, I'm going to die. He says in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's trying to let them know this is what's going to happen. But notice what he says in John chapter 12, verse 31. Now, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now, the prince of this world. Who's that, Satan? Now, the prince of this world will be driven out. Let me ask you a question. Did Jesus say that the judgment of this world would be at the second coming? Or did he say, now? He said, right now. And and who's to be driven out and have his dominion taken away? Satan, the prince of this world. Let me show you, Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul said it this way. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. In other words, that's not going to happen in the future. That happened 2,000 years ago on the first Easter after Jesus died for our sins and then three days later rose to defeat sin and death. See, this is why it's so important that we invite people on Easter. This is so important why we understand what happened the first Easter. Now, remember what Jesus said. He said, I'm going to go away and I'm going to go to the Father. Okay? Let me show you a passage. It's Daniel chapter 7. A lot of people think that this is, this is talking about the end of time. I want to give you a different perspective on it. By the way, Daniel chapter 7 is the best description in the Bible of God the Father. Hands down. It's incredible. Let me read it to you. Daniel 7 verse 9. Daniel says, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Do you guys, how many of you remember singing an old song, a worship song about the Ancient of Days? You remember that? Glory and blessing and honor, glory and power to the Ancient of Days. Do you know who wrote that song? Our worship director, Sam, his father, Ron Canoli. We tried to get him here this weekend just to lead us in that. I thought, how cool would that be, right? But this is where he got that song from. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. Daniel's vision continues in verse 13. Look at this. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, Jesus, coming with the clouds of heaven. Who do you think that is? Old Testament saints. What did Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, were surrounded by what? A cloud of witnesses. And it talks about those Old Testament saints, Abraham and Jacob and Joseph and Isaac. And so here they are. And so he's coming with the cloud of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. Look at this. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. 
All nations and people of every language worshiped him. Look at this. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is what that means. It means Jesus isn't going to get dominion one day. Jesus got dominion 2,000 years ago when he rose from the dead. And this is what it means to us today. Satan has been lying to us by telling us that he's still in charge of our lives, that he has dominion, that he has power, that he has authority over us. But Jesus said 2,000 years ago, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world is cast out. But every day Satan lies to us and says, I have dominion. I have power. I have authority. In fact, I'm still in charge until Jesus comes back. But he's not in charge. Jesus has already taken it back. Look what it says, Daniel chapter 7, verse 21. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people, the saints, and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. Look at this. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. Let me tell you something. We don't have to wait until, until Jesus returns to possess the kingdom of God. See, we get to enter the kingdom of God right now when we respond to the gospel. We get to enter the kingdom of God the moment that we say, I am lost, I need a savior, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God who died and shed his blood to pay for my sins and then three days later rose from the dead to show that he had the power over sin and death. I accept that. And when that happens, we enter the kingdom of God. In fact, this is what Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 says happens when we get saved. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. How cool is that? By the way, let me tell you what it means in Daniel 7 when it says that judgment was made in favor of the saints of the most high. It means that Jesus after paying for our sins on the cross, after then rising from the dead, came before the Ancient of Days, the Father. And the Father looked at Jesus, and then the Father looked at Satan, and it was like the Father slammed down his gavel and he said, saints win, Satan loses. See, and that's what happened. 2,000 years ago, the first Easter. And I'm telling you, we bought a bill of goods. Because see, you don't have to be in bondage to lust anymore. And you don't have to be in bondage to addiction anymore. And you don't have to be in bondage to fear and doubt because Jesus has all dimension. All authority. Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples after the resurrection? Matthew 28, 18. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. He didn't say I'm getting it back one day. He said, I got it the first Easter. And I'm telling you, if you want victory in your life, you've got to quit running your own life and you've got to put your faith and trust in Jesus. Otherwise, you're still under the authority 
You're still under the dominion and power of the enemy. This is why you invite people to Easter. It's not just so you can say you got somebody to church. It's so that they can experience what we get to experience. How to be free. How to be free. Let's bow our heads together. It blows my mind that we have the answer to life. We have the answer to life after death. And we don't tell anybody about it. It would be no different than a doctor who discovered a cure for cancer and decided just to keep it to himself. But I pray, that, Father, that we would truly develop a passion for people who are in bondage, people whose lives are disasters, and they don't even know where to turn. And we live in this crazy world that just gets more out of control every day, and everybody's kind of come up with solutions and ideas, and it's a, it's a political party, or it's this, or it's that, and it's not. It's the gospel. It's just the gospel. And Father, I pray that we would get so burdened over the lostness of our families, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors. And we may not have all the answers, but Father, we could help them take that step of discovering what really happened that first Easter and how it impacts our lives today. Give us a boldness like we've never had before. Give us a courage that we didn't even know resided within us. Give us a passion. We want to do more than just come to church and, and do good things. We want to see people saved. Saved from themselves. Saved from their sins so they can experience the life that you came to give them. And we pray next week when thousands show up here, Father, that your spirit would just move in a way like we've never seen. We can't wait to see what you're gonna do. In your name we pray, amen.